What is up guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength and Physique with your hosts, Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are betting themselves with fitness. All right, welcome <coughs> back to All The Smoke on Strength and Physique. We got a special guest all the way from the other side of the ocean. Uh, his name is John Kiley. He's got a well pedigree of you know experience in the trenches. He's also a well-known researcher um, with a variety of topics, but um, specifically, we really want to pick his brain on periodization um, and the exercise response efficiency, um, something that, you know, reading it is still in its infancy, but I think it has a lot of potential um, and statistical analysis approaches that we could, you know, kind of really dive in here. So, uh, John, if you don't mind for our eight listeners, if you didn't mind, could you go ahead and introduce yourselves and who you are and, you know, your current research background, please? Sure, yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for the invitation. Uh, I guess research background, well, who am I? Uh, most of all, I'm a coach um, and I've been a coach for a long time. Uh, all levels, kids. You know, I was a, I'm a boxing coach for the past 25 years. Um, <clears throat> so lots of kids, uh, some international class fighters as well, but that's really kind of my my hobby. Uh, I've also coached a couple of people, medalists in Paralympics. Yeah. Uh, I guess professionally, most of my time is spent with high-performing athletes. Um, I guess it's customary at this time to kind of run through the highlights, you know, of who I worked with. Uh, and what I would say is that, you know, it sounds like the success is there, but there was failures there as well. So the same as everyone else's career. Uh, I did the 2004 Paralympics with the Irish team. 2008 Olympics, I was the head of SNC for UK track and field. I uh, worked with them up to 2012 in London. I guess the other highlights, after 2012, I moved to a university. So I... I'm a species of animal they call a senior lecturer in elite performance. And basically what that means is I, I don't lecture, but I work one-on-one -on -one with people who are doing doctorates, mostly professional doctorates. So these are folks that are out working in the field, they're with clubs, they're with organizations. They have an innovation, they have a question they're trying to drive forward. And we structured the, their doctorate around that. So a uh, few conventional PhDs as well, but mostly it's the professional doctorate folks I work with. And it's it's this, you know, it's communicating. They're all over the world. So it's communicating like this and having interesting conversations with interesting folks most of the time. So, so yeah, it's enjoyable. Uh, where was I? Yeah. As regards highlights. So yeah, I've worked with a few Olympic medalists, uh, work 2013. I worked with Laura Massaro the year she won the world squash title. She was world number one that year. Uh, won the British Open as well, which is the other big event. 2014, 15, and 16, I worked with Irish rugby, Six Nations, which we the champ, we won that championship in 14 and 15. Went to the World Cup with them in 2015. Uh, went to the football World Cup with Egypt in 2018. Uh, I'd like to think some other interesting things would have happened, but for COVID, but there you go. That's my excuse. Um, so yeah, I've, I've worked with a lot of people. Um, 
been what was some the good successes, been some good failures, a bad what? failures, good successes. <laughs> uh, good failures, are, failures are always good too, though. So I can back that. What made you transition to sort of guiding PhD individuals one-on-one after having this long career through teams and stuff like that? Uh, well, okay, so two things. For people who've worked in professional sport, it's a it can be a very unpredictable, unreliable way to make a living. <clears throat> Football manager changes, coach gets fired, you have a bad season, you have to move house every couple of years because of your new job, you know, you're following the Olympics around, that type of thing. So I guess I had a partner back in Ireland. I was living in the UK. This was an offer that allowed me to keep my foot in the UK, work for a UK university, but do it from, you know, where I am right now, rural Ireland. Uh, yeah, so, and there's obviously mostly, there's, there's quite a bit of travel involved, but um, uh, that was knocked on the head with the pandemic. But yeah, I get to interact with a lot of interesting people from all over the world. Uh, and for that, it's worked out well. Yeah, I've been quite lucky. Yeah, and I think yeah, that's what makes you, you know, a special individual because you've had so much time in the trenches, but you also have your foot in the door, like you said, in academia. Um, working with individuals that have questions that trying to push this field forward Uh, specifically with your paper um, you're known for one of the individuals that you know kind of criticize periodization and you know the the backbone of how we utilize it with the original stress model Um, could you walk us through you know what the stress the original stress theory was um, and how it was proposed and how it has like I guess shaped training for how it is utilized today Okay, yeah, so this is the start of a very, very complex thing. So let me just start off with it. If we're talking about periodization, we nearly need to start with some agreement about what we what the word means. Because I work with coaches all the time who use periodization, but they don't periodize. Other people don't period do periodize, but don't call it periodization. It's just planning to them. So it's it's very much this overlapping very amorphous fuzzy term that some people plant their flag in and say you know this is the way the truth and the light and other people say no 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 periodization is rubbish but neither of them are neither side are contextualizing what they're talking about <clears throat> so when i think of the word periodization uh yeah let's do it a different way let's go back to the origins so prior to the 1950s, the word periodization wasn't used in sports context. What happened then, and uh, there was Olympics in 52 in Helsinki, the USA topped the medals table. USSR as it was, came second, which they deemed a failure. So they decided we need to up our game. Uh, Nobody likes to get beaten by the US, as you know, so the Soviets decided they were going to sort that out. They got a, a young PhD student called Leonid Matviev, and they gave him access to tons and tons and tons of data and asked him to come up with a better way to plan. So naturally enough, what Matviev did was crunch the numbers in three sports. Of, it was weightlifting, swimming. Uh, I can't remember if it was cycling or running, but three sports that are relatively easy to quantify. 
And this day I did eight, eight reps, three sets, eight reps at 80%. Um, so after a few years, in the early 70s, Matthew had, or probably in the 60s, Matthew had wrapped all this up and he had used the word in, in uh, sorry, he published a book and that's when he came to our attention in the West, but he published it in uh, Russian originally. And that's where the word periodization was first dropped in in a training context. Now, the word periodization is commonly used in kind of history, in the study of history. And it means like, you know, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment. It's just a, a categorization. So he borrowed that word because his sense was from crunching the numbers that people needed to break their training into logical, sequential chunks. So periodization was a was a, a good word for that. So that's where the word came from. Now he didn't actually define it in his little green book, Fundamentals of Sports Training. He doesn't define the term periodization, but he used the term periodization. And he uses it to describe his recommendation. Uh, and his recommendation was pretty much as you know, as we all know, periodization. You have this long training period, be it a season or six months or four years, and you break it into periods of equal time, large periods, mesocycles, shorter periods, microcycles, and you give them a specific focus. Now, to cut to the chase, since Matthew's time, periodization has kind of morphed quite a bit. Now, some of that morphing is because other people, both academics and coaches have come in and they've come up with their own version, their own flavor of periodization. Um, you know, and you all know that we could all list them off, nonlinear block, daily undulating, yada, yada, yada. <clears throat> um, and yeah, so, so the idea has morphed. And there was a, a recent paper out in one of the high-level sports uh, science journals, Sports Medicine. And where the paper was just reviewing the definitions of periodization. And there was something like 80 plus definitions out there kind of in the ether. So hence- Yeah, that was actually done in our, that was actually done in our USF lab, Rio. Uh, Get away, yeah, very yeah. good. Rio, yeah, he that was that was a crazy paper. Him being able to find hundred plus definitions of periodization. Was it over hundred? I thought it was, it was over yeah, eighty. It was over hundred. No, Adam, and the the research article stopped at eighty for the sake of the length of the document itself. And then there, after they had finalized it, they decided to add a few more. But yes, there was more than eighty, and I'm sure, Adam, that there was over a hundred. Yeah, oh, which fantastic. is just which just lets us know that there is no clear definition of what periodization is or have we actually even studied it. And it kind of means that it's not actually a scientific concept. Now, all this comes down to definitions to find a scientific concept, but just as a, from a coaching perspective, one of the things that happens if you make a, a concept fuzzy is it's very difficult to critique how do I criticize something that keeps shape shifting? Now, I, I don't want to keep 
I don't care what it's called, if it's planning periodization, but what I want to know is if I'm working with someone, is there a best way for me to plan and what is that way? I don't care what you call it. Um, so, so yeah, uh, let me see. So that paper is great because that highlights the, the, the lack of clarity in the field. But if I was to summarize, which I'm obviously going to, what I'd say is that if you look at, I don't know if you can say this for all the definitions, but I would say if you say for 90% of the definitions, um, there, there's a number of key criteria that are common to all. <clears throat> One, there's an assumption of predictability. If we do this, we will get this. There's an assumption that you can correctly break things down into discrete timeframes that you can in some way know what the best time frame is. Well, we don't often think of that, but that's a fundamental assumption of periodization models. Um, and if you look at the papers that have been published, they'll always give a reason and a citation, but often the citation is something that, you know, that person wrote earlier. It's not, it, it, there's no scientific basis. Okay, so there's, Assumption of predictability, assumption of timeframes, and an assumption that, well, if I sequence this before this, it's better than if I do it the other way around. Now, there are three things that are taken as, if you pull those away, in a sense, the theory that periodization has been built on collapses from a scientific sense. Now, I guess when we talk about periodization, we're always talking about two things, but we're always talking about it the same way. The first thing for me is, from a coaching practical perspective, is it a good tool? Okay, forget about the scientific side of it, but is it a good tool? Is it help or hindering coaches? Is it confusing or clarifying for coaches? So that's one thing. And that's a separate question too, is this empirically proven? So I think from a uh, kind of a scientific perspective, there's, I, I would say <laughs> there doesn't seem to be any logic to assume that you can generalize timeframes. You can generalize how much someone will improve if they do X, Y, or Z for a given time period. Um, it's, it's like the, the key foundational stones that one pitch on which classic periodization rests don't hold aren't valid empirically now people hear me say this and they automatically think well i'm just kicking periodization you know that but it's not driven by that it's driven by there doesn't seem to be any evidence for this from a coaching perspective that doesn't mean it's a bad thing because what it does give a lot of coaches is, especially if, if a coach maybe isn't very experienced or is working with lots and lots of athletes, you need a model, you need something because there's a lot of confusion. So you need a structure to work to. So I would say, well, as long as that structure is sensible, safe, you know, has what, you know, um, encompasses all the things that you feel are important, then that's fine. 
So that's one end of the spectrum. Other end of the spectrum, maybe you're you're an experienced coach working with a very experienced high-level athlete and you were looking at squeezing out, you know, maybe the 15, 10, 12, 15 years in the tank of elite training. You're squeezing out one last Olympics. You're fighting for a few milliseconds or, you know, half a dozen centimetres. Are you going to take a kind of a training theory founded on generalizations from very generic blunt data or are you going to look at this without that kind of um, without that sense that you need to conform to a structure are you going to invent your own structure to deal with the task in front of you now what happens is certainly and i'm speaking more from a coaching perspective now what happens is all coaches have a general sense that there's this thing called periodization. All the periodization papers refer to periodization as a scientific theory, scientifically proven theory. The evidence that's provided is very lightweight, you know, and you can find evidence for pretty much any complex topic, or sorry, for any complex phenomenon, you can find conflicting evidence really easily. It's child's play. You can... You can come at it from one frame of mind and I'm going to write a paper that proves this. Or you can come at it from this frame and you can write a paper that proves the opposite or appears to prove the opposite. <clears throat> so that's very confusing, obviously, from a coaching perspective. But what I do find with, with a lot of coaches and me as a, as a younger coach, it was I'm, I'm designing a training plan. I feel I should be sticking to these rules because these rules have been handed down. And, oh, well, the Soviet Union did it, and we all know what the Soviet Union, kind of whatever that means. But the Soviet Union is kind of this stamp that we all take as that's kind of cultural validation for some reason. Whereas, it, and obviously it shouldn't be. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, in that, that first periodization paper in 2012, I guess I was just making the point. It's kind of the emperor's new clothes here. Why do we keep all the papers that we look at, all the famous papers, they all talk about, you know, you, you mentioned stress theory. They all, most of them, if they're written in the West, they reference Selye. But all Selye was saying was, well, if you get stressed, you need a period, a period of recovery and then you get better. Okay. How does that justify periodization? Well, it kind of doesn't. It doesn't tell us anything. It doesn't add to the argument in any way. Now, I said Selye in the West because in the East, they, you know, under Soviet rule, they had an embargo on Western science. So they didn't talk about Selye's work, but they hooked it to existing Soviet research, not in stress, but they had a, a different fluffy way of, of having this historical precedent that they could point and say, oh, well, this research proved that pretty much if you push, then you have to recover and then you get better. But that doesn't tell you how to plan six weeks or three months or a year or four years. That just tells you something you already knew. If I push too hard too soon, the wheels are going to come off. But this is the kind of the this is the cell that's been done. And the cell is, here's an obvious fact. Here's a truism that you can't argue with. Here's at the name of Hans Selye. 
one of the greatest scientists of the first half of the 20th century. See, now, whoop, sleight of hand. Now here's my set of rules for daily undulating or nonlinear or conjugate sequence or whatever. So it's kind of a sleight of hand there. Now, I'm not saying people are doing it deliberately. They may well believe that, but that's what it is. Yeah, the- and- Go ahead, Chris. And I think you touched on something we wanted to talk about slightly is Celier's model of stress, which is focusing on a very small amount of variables that athletes, they athletes are going to handle so many more stressors than what a simple rat would in this Celier study. And for that matter, there, there needs to be a broader approach taken. And I think that's where this planned programming or periodization really helps because it takes an account larger amount of factors than what Celia did. Uh, in regards to stress though, and factors that sort of affect the stress, what, what do you think were really not taken into account before or what do you think needs to be taken into account more, especially with your experience? Uh, I, I've worked very little with larger uh, Division One athletics or professional athletics, but what are some more factors that you think coaches on a larger scale need to focus on in regards to stress? Well, you said a bundle there. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a... That's another week's work, but <laughs> okay. It's a really good point. And if we look at con- conventional training theory, the way we all learned it on our granny's knee, it was like, there's a stimulus, i.e. there's a physical training stimulus, and then there's an adaptation that pops out the other side and they're directly related. More of this, more of this, less of this, less of this, unless Selye, you pass this critical threshold and then the wheels come off. So make sure you don't pass that and make sure you you get some recovery. Um, And I guess what is, I was gonna say it's becoming more and more obvious, but in in reality, from a scientific perspective, it was obvious since the early seventies to psychologists in the sixties that what you think what you feel, the emotions you're subjected to, or sorry, you subject yourself to, all these influences directly influence how you respond to any given stimulus. So, and I think this is, this isn't a a fault of Matthew. I think Matthew is, you know, blameless in this. He did in a historical in a, in a world that we would not now recognize. The scientific world he operated in was a mechanistic straight line, raw right angles scientific world. That's how they understood things. You know, at, at least in, in the kind of biological fields back then. Whereas now we're all aware, well, hey, this is all nonlinear and it's all complex adaptive systems. And if I poke here, there could be some crazy consequence up here, or I could push here like crazy and nothing happens up here. So we're all, we're all kind of tuned into that now, but yet periodization theory ignores all of that. 
sometimes you know they'll drop or there will be a, a phrase or two dropped into a paper about nonlinear and this and that but for example and getting back to your point I've never seen in a periodization paper anyone talk about people talk about stress but only in a physical context but your your body your brain doesn't necessarily differentiate between physical and emotional stress it's like they take it your body takes in a, sing, a signal and generates a response it could be the same response running up a hill as getting exam results or going through a breakup or worried that a friend is sick or 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 so yes that's something that we've completely overlooked the influence of of stress emotion um, i would extend it to even a feeling of a sense of purpose and i would yeah from my perspective my experience and my trying to figure this out like crazy you know for the past 20 25 years is all of these things are fundamental aspects of the train of, of training of a good training plan and a good training program for me a good training plan isn't sets and reps and exercises and times and you know rest weeks it's okay i tell you what i put fill in whatever you want in physical challenge but there needs to be some education that goes in here because the athlete needs to understand why they're doing what we're asking them to do and if they don't then you are missing a big big trick they need to either agree with this and feel that this serves their purpose their grander purpose their great life ambitions that this fits in for them that this is going to move them closer to realizing those ambitions because if it doesn't you have just broken a chain there so i think and this isn't about um selling stuff or you know like bullshitting people or anything like that it's about me as a coach saying to the athlete here's what i think is best but you need to go away and think about it and come back because we need to agree on this you need to understand you need to understand why you're doing what you're doing and you need to feed back to me and you know and we need to grow this together there needs to be ownership there needs to be responsibility they need to buy in. Now, in some contexts, that's easy. It's you, one-on-one, -on -one, it's an elite athlete, it's a nine-month goal. Easy, lots of contact. If it's you and, you know, an American football squad, then it gets harder. But there's always ways you can move towards the ideal. So, for example, in a squad context, it could be at the start of every session, I have the session up on the board and I'm just going, here's what we're doing. We all agreed on this the last time. Uh, the, some of you fed back this, so I've adjusted this. You know, if there's any questions, come and see me. So something like that, three minutes, but every every time you do it, you're feeding out a small snapshot of information. You're reinforcing that you have an involvement here. We, we care what you think or what you feel because you have to, you have to relate to this program. If you don't, if you're doing something, if you're walking into the training room and it's like, 
I hate Tuesday mornings, you know, and we're squatting and my knee always kind of winds up on Wednesday morning when I wake up. And if your head is full of stuff like this, you are not going to have a good training session. And from a, a kind of a neurobiological perspective, whether or not you, obviously non-consciously, whether or not you release the adaptive resources to respond to any given stimulus depends on your sense of, let's call it security or threat. If I feel like, well, I'm actually in an emergency situation here, you're not gonna grow muscle. You will grow muscle when you feel like, actually, I can release these resources to grow, to do a, you know, a, for all intents and purposes, an extension project. If you, if you have that, if you don't have that feeling, then you won't. Now, this might sound like a stretch, but if you, if you take extreme examples, if you get a kid and you stress them out, where severe stress is isolation, and this happened, you know, remaining orphanages and various other places, they will stop growing. Psychogenic dwarfism is a technical term. And what is that? Well, basically it's the child's subconscious going, I am in trouble here. I am not going to lay down any new tissue. I'm going to keep all my adaptive energy just for survival purposes. And what was this dwarfism term called? I'm going to write this. Uh, it's just uh, psychogenic, and it just means uh, psychological in origin. Uh, <clears throat> so that's an extreme. But, yeah, and I don't know how I got onto that. I'm obviously gone off on some massive tangent. Oh, it's, but, it's great but, because, you know, I think what you're kind of portraying is if we don't have client buy-in or athlete buy-in and more importantly, if we're not monitoring either the day-to-day -day stress or the weekly stress, right. We can't say from this point, we're going to get to this point if we're not making them a part of the process. And I think periodization, as you said, lacks a lot of that because we think progress is linear. And I think if anything was linear, us as coaches, we probably wouldn't have a stable job or anything of that. Like it would be so easy. We could just, Hey, just do this, do this, do this. I don't care what happens. Like it's, this is going to happen, right? You're just going to spit out this. Um, but one term that you, and I think you were kind of defining it a little bit was aliostasis. Um, could you sure. define that? Cause that was a big piece in the, the paper in 2018 um, and how it was applicable to training. And I think again, how, bring it into the athlete to have some sort of buy-in within the process. Okay, well, Alastasis ties in pretty well here. So, and I guess that 2018 paper, so it was uh, Confronting an Inconvenient Truth is what it was called. Um, and I talked with stress theory and I talked with stress theory in the context of periodization because if you look at any of the classic periodization theory, periodization theory papers, they all start off with Hanselli in 1934, you know, a letter to nature, yada, 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 and talked with stress theory. And it's, okay, that's the validation done. Okay, Selye, very famous scientist, he said this back then. Now I'm going to come in with this structured set of formalized rules but it's okay because I, I mentioned Celia at the start. So Celia, without question, great scientist, worked with rats, worked with uh, a, 
a single kind of um, corticosteroid. Um, he was quite mean to those rats too, if you if we he recall. Was very, he, <laughs> he was very mean to those rats. He, that was basically what he did for a living was be nasty to rats, right? Put them up in the, he was in Montreal. So uh, put them on the roof, exposed to the elements in winter, uh, put them in the furnace room, that type of thing. But it was all based on stressing them out. And he, it was cortisol was, you know, what was new on the scene at the time. And he was one of the first to market with investigating cortisol. Uh, and yeah, that's fine. But I guess he was a great scientist, did some great things, yada, yada, yada. No one is, you can object to, periodiz to periodization without slapping Celia in the face. But it's, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. My point, if I have one, is what? Okay, so Celia is always mentioned at the front end of periodization papers to then substantiate periodization, even though it doesn't directly. Celia talked about stress. We all talk about stress. And again, it's one of these fuzzy terms. We use it multiple times every day and with a different meaning every time, pretty much. Now, the other thing that Celia talked about was homeostasis. So homeostasis, as you'll all know, is the concept that, uh, you know, I kind of bobble along here on my even keel, there's a perturbation, boom, I'm knocked out of homeostasis. And then everything kicks in to restore me to homeostasis and I bobble along, bobble along happily again. But it, it's pretty clear and it has been for, you know, 20, 30 years that there's only a few parameters in the body that are homeostatic in nature. You know, and it's things like, it's things that if they went wrong, you would crash and burn pretty quick. It's like pH in the brain, you know, core, core temperature, maybe uh, brain temperature. Yes. You know, things like that. It's, it's not training targets. All training targets are, I think more accurately described as allostatic phenomenon. And allostatic means that these things don't, they're not tightly controlled themselves. They, they're made to be adaptable, to function within wide limits. And they're all interrelated. So, you know, and, and this is kind of a common theme within, you know, if you talk about running coordination or kind of anything to do with our field. If you push here, or if you cause some damage here, it's not like there's going to be one response. There's going to be multiple responses. You're going to find multiple ways to fix the problem. Um, and things go out of balance in the allostatic system all the time. Uh, I'm trying to think of a good example, and I'm kind of blanking on it. Was, was that relatively clear? Yeah, so if, if, yeah, if, if I was to characterize it, homeostatic, critical to life, okay, tightly bound. Allostatic systems, they vary widely, like blood pressure goes up and down dur during the day. It's not tightly bound within a narrow bandwidth. So in a sense, you know, we've been looking to Celia's validation for something that is completely inappropriate 
to look at through a cellular lens. Allostasis. Your allostasis, your allostatic response isn't made up of, uh, isn't directly proportional to the stimulus. It's directly proportional to your perception of the stimulus. Now that might sound like I'm splitting hairs, but it's not because your perception is the emotion that's bound up in it. Your, I'm going to use the word mindset, sorry. But when I use the word mindset, I'm thinking about your collection of beliefs around that particular phenomenon. It's, you know, background context, background stress. Is there other people there? Are you taking comfort or threat from those? It's bound up pretty much in all the information you're internalizing from the external world and all the internal information that your brain is access, has access to within the body. So very sensibly, what your brain is doing is takes in information, contextualizes it against history, prior learning, prior experiences, makes an interpretation, and that's what drives the allostatic response. So I'm squatting, me and my identical twin brother, you know, genetically engineered, exactly the same, exact same training histories. You bring us into a lab to do an experiment. At the door, you say something different to both of us. You put a kind of negative thought in my head. Oh, geez, I hope my knee doesn't wind up again. You put a positive thought in the other twin. Hey, you squatted really well last week. They both go in. They both do the exact same loads, exact same speeds, yada, yada, yada. My money, my rationale says that the person who goes in with the positive perception of context and what is going is likely to happen within this session and how it relates to their future goals will respond way more than the person who goes in and thinks I better be careful of this and they have that little bit of anxiety just that little shade of doubt that little bit of worry and they have a negative interpretation oh shit this is going to wind me up now again and I'm going to be limping in the morning or it'll be stiff for the first half hour blah 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 what are what are some uh so these allostatic variables it is very applicable to training itself because like you said you go in squat it's not going to impact one thing if you say something and they have a different thought they might respond better through several different mechanisms but what are some like daily weekly monthly things that you do whether it be RPE, weekly check-ins, uh, monthly testing, uh, questionnaires. Uh, you mentioned velocity. I, I think you mentioned velocity-based training, but that's one Adam listed. What are some things that you keep in mind to make sure you're maximizing these variables that we're trying to change? Okay. Again, great question. And I think for me, because I working you know in one context and then you work in a totally different context this could be six weeks this could be three years this could be you know i think it's uh i don't have necessarily a rule-based approach but i'll tell you i'll tell you what i do take from all of this that's applicable across contexts regardless of and if you're working with a, an athlete or a patient or whatever it is i think 
it's very useful to think of the coach as an agent of placebo or nocebo. And I think that's a very powerful way of thinking about it. If I am a really motivated athlete, coach is a key person in my life. And I think that puts a responsibility on us to kind of model good practice, model good communication. And I don't think we're aware of how important that is. There's been a recent study out now, it was a small one, but even small facial expressions by the coach can change things for the athlete. Like when I say change things, change things internally, the chemistry, the neurobiology, basically the backdrop upon which you overlay training stimuli, that can change. And I think if I was to point to one thing that we're not good at, it's setting the background state of somebody. When we think of the background state, we think, oh, well, hydrate and eat. But I don't even think that's the important bit. I think there is a instilling trust, belief, faith, security, um, sense of purpose. I think they're things that conventionally we've missed that doesn't come out in our SNC books or in our training theories or anything like that, but it is a prime driver of everything we do. Mm-hmm. Everything we do right, everything we do wrong, when things go well, when things go bad. You know, stress, if we want to use, we can use stress as a term, kind of a, a fuzzy term, but related to injury, related to illness, um, related to underperformance. Um, so, so yeah, so that's the first thing I'd say. There's a simple thing, regardless of how much te- what technology you've access to, or what resources you've access to. It's the coach should model the type of behaviour they want to instil in the athlete. That doesn't mean you need to be up at six on the river rowing. It just means that we need to be diligent. We need to be we need to be organised. We need to show the athlete we care. Our communication needs to be clear. That doesn't mean you have to be speaking like some Oxford English Don. You know, it can be, you know, the language is a street, whatever's natural for you, but you need to be able to communicate with the person. You need to be able to get a picture in your head into their head. And you need to have kind of uh, the same language. Yeah. And you have seen it, people from different backgrounds talking to one another, talking past one another. I think from a coaching perspective, that happens too much. Um, and now, so, with, with yeah. regards to that, right, you're, you're kind of recommending a lot of it, right? The, the training variables, right? That's almost like you're saying, it's not as important as instilling this trust, instilling this communication, this education to your athletes. Now, how would you, I guess, recommend then speaking to these individuals um, and how to embrace maybe that uncertainty of, yes, we're going to do this. And I'm hoping for this, but maybe we might not get that. And if we don't get that, we have to, you know, change our route a little bit. Yeah. Um, okay. So first off, uh, I'm, I'm not saying it's more important or less important, but I, I know I don't know. I, I guess it's both depending on context, but obviously you need to take, be diligent with your prescription. What I would say is what we should do more of that we tend not to in most cultures is get the athlete involved. 
Now, when the athlete is inexperienced, that involvement will be low level. But if you never give them some voice, then, and I've come across it loads of times, an athlete moves camp when they're 30. And it's like talking to a 15 year old when you're talking about training because their previous coach never fed them information or never had a discussion. It was just do this, do this, do this. And then they don't grow in that sense. So I think we need to think of how the athlete is developing. It's not just this single facet. It's not just physically. It's I need to gradually drip feed out some education here. So they become their own decision maker down the line. And if I don't start now, they'll never get to that stage in five years time. And then there's also instilling those things that you said, you know, the belief, the sense of purpose, um, yeah, just wrapping all those good, positive emotions around what they do. Now, this, none of this is meant to, you know, it's not like this kind of idea, idyllic world. I think there is still is a place for getting hard with an athlete. And sometimes maybe when they don't want to, oh, coach, I'm feeling a bit, you know, a, a bit under the weather. Well, okay but we're going to use this as an opportunity. We're going to go really hard today because you might wake up Olympic final day and feel crap. What are you going to do then? Yeah, okay, well, this is where we can learn to handle that. So this isn't about all, come, come here and give me a hug. This is about how can I carefully, meticulously, persistently nurture this athlete's resilience and robustness. And it's a multifaceted thing. It's not like, well, three sets of 12 for four weeks and then we'll do this. I like uh, how you frame that, though. Yeah. You're, you're trying to seize the opportunity at hand and put it in a, a different lens to that athlete so they understand, hey, where you're coming from. And as you said, bringing them into that process of, hey, right, you might feel like crap today. I think we've all had those days when we go into sure. the gym and we feel like complete shit, but those end up being the best training sessions or the end of the spectrum is you go in and you feel them really good, but then the training is awful. Um, but either way, you're trying to still have some sort of stimulus to reach your end goal of that aspect. Yeah. You know, and what you've said, and you know, we're talking about it here as if it's complete common sense. And what you've said is absolutely on the money, but I've been in situations getting off the bus, going into events, world standard, and the wheels are just coming off people because uh, I don't feel, I, I'm not hydrated, you know, and you think it doesn't matter. You've trained all your life for this, get on with it. You know, you're not a baby, you're a professional. So it's not all about, again, like I said, let's all go and hug the tree. It's, Sometimes it's about just reframing the challenge ahead in a more in a more positive sense. You have trained for this. You were ready for this. You woke up. You feel crap. You didn't sleep. Baby was awake. It doesn't matter. You just got to get on with it. So let's adapt our plan. Let's add an extra five minutes to the warm up. You need to be a bit more aggressive in your self talk. It's okay. We can cope. And I think it's always instilling that. We can cope, okay? We can do this. This is what we do in training, week in, week out. This is what being a resilient athlete is. It's not just you did the kind of uh, the prehab stuff. Mentally, emotionally, you need to be resilient as well. And I think when you get to most athletes at the back end of their, of their careers, 
that's what they've kind of, if they've survived, they've developed that. I guess, but for us, it's how can I accelerate that development? So this person gets there sooner. They're the experienced, seasoned, toughened, durable athlete quicker, rather sooner rather than later. Now, with you know, no, no, I totally agree. And something that I try to portray either to like my middle school athletes or my high school athletes that I've coached, or even some of my online clients, is like, right, the mind hears or the body hears everything that mind says. So why not feed the positive things? Like you said, if things go a little weird, maybe spend an extra five minutes you said on the warm up maybe instead of jumping to 135 to 225 on that squat you go 135 185 right there's different avenues to kind of prepare yourself mentally and physically for whatever is about to happen at hand um i think you know the one question uh for you is right so how do we i guess demonstrate ourselves or through the scientific process um efficacy and effectiveness when right now that literature is so sparse on topics like compliance and fidelity, like how, what is the next steps you'd like to see in those topics, in those processes? Okay, well, I guess, uh, actually, sorry for this now, but I'm gonna have to grab a charger. Sorry guys, I'm just after getting a warning light here. Right. It's just gonna take me 10 seconds. Okay, so let me take it from a kind of a practical perspective and uh, an academic perspective. We can try and separate those maybe. I think from a, a practical perspective, I, I'm the same as everyone else, just trying to feel my way here, but I guess I try and model behavior as in like not set myself up as being a perfect person or anything like that, but just around the training context. And it's how we plan. So for example, I don't know if you've been in the situation, but a lot of athletes don't know how to travel. The experienced ones do, they are fantastic travelers and you can spot them straight away. If you have a squad, and you're getting a flight, you know the experienced ones because they've all their comforts put into their bag. They have their socks, they have their pillow, you know, all those type of things. And they they use rest as a weapon in a sense. You know, they're always thinking of where's my next meal coming from? Where's my where am I going to be able to sleep? How long will that sleep be? They're kind of it's a it's a it's a reflex to be going through those. Uh, and I think it's a necessary skill. <clears throat> um, I think as coaches, what we need to do is one, look to ourselves. And again, as I said, how we're communicating, how we're modeling behavior, how we're, what our processes are. So for example, every coach you ever talk to would say, oh, well, I look into my athlete's eyes and I listen to my athletes. Um, and I used to think that as well. And then I started to track it and found out, no, actually, I don't always do it. Sometimes I do it, but I'm erratic. And sometimes the questions I ask athletes are very different than other times. So I'm not always getting the same information. 
So once I started kind of looking at in, investigating my own processes rather than looking over other people's shoulders, it was like, this is very imperfect. So as an example, if I'm going into work with uh, an athlete, I might have three questions that I'll ask on a regular basis. They won't know about them. They'll be in the back of my head. They might be framed differently every day, but it'll be, what, what's the critical information I need to get at? Uh, any stiffness since last day? Yeah, okay, good, you sleep all right? Yeah, you know what we're doing today? Did you read through the program? Okay, the last time we did this, uh, your knee got wound up the next day, so do we need to adapt that? Okay, let's do a warm-up set. So you start, you, you, you get the information you need, you push the athlete's focus into the session at hand, and then I'd normally finish with something, you know why we're doing this? And I have to do that in different kind of iterations every time. So it's not just you saying kind of a buzzword or, you know, some motivational sentence at the, at the, uh, at the, at the start of every session. Something different, but something, something to draw the athlete's focus in and to, in a sense, reassure them that what you're doing today, it's not just because it's Tuesday you're doing this. You're doing this because you want to be here in five years' time. You know, and you're drawing that straight line between this is where you, this is how you get to there. You need to be diligent and take care of business today. It's not just enough to come in, talk with a few of the others, mess around, goof off, lose a session. Um, and I realize I'm kind of banging on about it now, but I think you can do this in very time efficient ways. Um, you can get to the crux of this. It could be 30 seconds. Boom, boom, boom. You have your little list rehearsed. And that athlete is very subtly more finely tuned for the session at hand. Maybe just that little bit more confident. And maybe it's not much, but it's a bit. And what we're in the game of is really fighting for all those little bits and harnessing as much of those little bits every time you go to the trough, every time you train. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure if I answered your question. I lost you there for a little bit. So I, I honestly missed a little bit of it. Um, I can now it's telling me my internet connection is unstable. Um, I think, John, I think you hit it on the point though. And you mentioned a really, you mentioned quite a few really good points and, I don't think enough coaches, that's something I recently read. It was more so just towards, it wasn't the athlete approach. It was more so just the general population or bodybuilding approach that there's some biofeedback going on that we need to take into account and some ways, however, the coach decides to manage that, like you said, uh, for a while, I wasn't doing it consistently until I read this book. Uh, and it really dove in depth about biofeedback. So now th there's every three weeks, I reevaluate uh, each of these variables and how they have been lately. Uh, aches and pains, your, your strength is increasing, decreasing, uh, loads and reps, et cetera. Uh, your stress, how's it been? Uh, but these are all things I still keep up on 
on a weekly basis because some weeks might indicate it. It's not going to be the every third week, but the biofeedback or having something in place to really keep track of these individuals, whether they're athletes, clients, uh, bodybuilders, whatever it is, you need these routine questions or these routine things that really keep you on track to be successful because it's not just your training. It is all these other things that are getting impacted also by your training. Cause a lot of people, one very common thing that I get in the general population is I ask them, how do you manage stress? Like, what do you do for yourself? What do you do to relax? And they, they say, I go to the gym and I'm like, okay, that's great. That'll, that'll help you respond to stress. And it might make things less stressful when you encounter it in the future. However, it is an added stressor to your life. So I think the, I think you really hit some really good points on that. I just wanted to wrap that up. Uh, Adam, do you have any other questions or, uh, John, I would say, you know, I, I, appreciate you coming on. Uh, this is always a pleasure because you're right. Um, I think nowadays with periodization, especially now that we know there's 80 plus hundred plus definitions, we still have these stones in the world where like, Hey, it's, it's this way or the highway. And it's not really an educational process anymore. It's more of an ego testicle. I'm gonna bump my chest at you. Um, it's this way or the highway. Um, and again, I think from looking out of a different lens or a different scope, um, really allows us to move the field forward. And again, I think all of us, that's the end, of, end goal of what we try to do here. Um, I would ask, you know, what are your current projects that, you know, or writings um, that you have coming up? Um, and, you know, could you tell our, our couple listeners uh, where they could find you um, in some of even your articles? Because the great thing about a lot of your articles is they're all open access. Um, so they're free to the, the general public to read. Yeah, so um, maybe I'll go to the last question first. So, pretty much everything I've written is available freely on ResearchGate. So if you just type in John Kiley ResearchGate, you'll find it. Um, and yeah, er everything that I could make open access is open access. Um, the, so uh, Chris, that was very interesting. You know, what you were saying about the uh, biomarkers and, and, and tracking and Yeah, like everyone else, I would always look at, okay, well, I need to put my assessment system in place, my monitoring system in place. But I think what's happened in a lot of sport, pro sports, definitely over this side of the world, is that um, the monitoring data has taken over thinking. And data is, most of the data we have, Barring the very cleverest of it is just, it's giving you a snapshot on a single metric at a single time point, maybe a couple of time points. But yeah, I'd be very wary. I, I no, what's the right way to put it? I think it's useful and I think it's damaging. I think it all depends on how we weight it. So for example, if I am getting, for some reason, as humans, we prioritize objective data. Mm -hmm. If a machine tells me something, then it's more important than what you tell me, even if it's about you. And I think that's kind of flawed logic. But I mean, I find myself doing it. If, if, if it says this, 
and the readout, then I'm going to doubt what you say. But I don't think that's a I don't think that's the right way to do it. I think we need to obviously build in the subjective athlete data and weight that more heavily than we weight this stuff. I think this stuff still gives us a layer of information, but there's been a lot of trouble in professional sport with this being accepted as the gospel because it was a number from a new machine, a new piece of technology. And you're, you're referring to uh, systematic approaches on monitoring progress or sure. feedback yeah yeah, yeah. so in a well, uh, it, yeah sorry it, it could be periodic monitoring or it could be daily tracking yeah what, what is your approach so i know you said thinking uh and i definitely don't disagree with that but what are some ways you think coaches in the professional setting could go about doing this effectively or how have you done it or adapted to doing it over the years? I, I don't think I've been in a situation where I or the context I was working in did it effectively. I've been in context where every morning you roll out of bed and you get measured and you get poked and prodded. Over a period of years, and when I think back on, well, what did you do with the data? Hung it up in the wall? Nothing. So that type of thing is obviously, well, I was gonna say it's obviously wrong, but you could say, well, maybe it's given the athlete a sense that they're being taken care of, that things are being monitored, but you'd much rather not have something there just for show. You'd want, to, you'd want the athlete to get that sense that we're being looked after, we're being properly monitored, and also have the feeling, well, this is actually giving us meaningful data that we can make decisions from. So there's so many technologies out there at the moment. And I think that's a, yeah. the, the way you finish that statement. I think that's really good because uh, recently when I was doing an internship at USF, their athletics, there was another coach that had came from another internship. And that was one thing that they did was they did this by uh this questionnaire, which allowed the individual to have a workout based on what they answered. So either high load or low load, or either a power or strength day, uh, depending on how they felt when they came into the gym, they would have a workout that would go based off how they're feeling. Um, yeah. Which okay. So can I play a little devil devil's advocate there? So what, and I guess maybe the problem in itself, if, if you have athletes, like, I guess, lying or playing that system, but what would you do if you have athletes that, right, coach, I know coach is going to, you know, make it a little lower intensity if I say, hey, man, I, my knees are aching, I'm just not feeling it. Um, but it sounds like if you're consistently measuring them or you consistently see, hey, this different performance and, you know, maybe they're just not feeling or being themselves, then you can kind of, I guess, adjust that plan or the training session, but how, I guess, how is your approach from either one of those, John? Okay, well, I, I would think of it as on a spectrum. You can be very adaptive to objective metrics over here, or you can totally ignore them over here. Um, I would use objective measures, like if it's daily tracking stuff, like, I don't know, let's say you're doing a, a drop jump landing or something like that. Uh, and all of a sudden you have, you know, your normal bandwidth variation and then boom, there's a spike. 
Uh, I think that's okay. All that would do is stimulate a conversation with the athlete. You know, hey, 30 seconds, you feeling okay? Yeah, everything all right? Drop jump is off. Do you want to take another five minutes warm up and then we'll touch base again? I wouldn't go reacting to something in an automated way. And I guess that's what I mean by, and I think there has been a trend in recent years. I think it's starting to reverse now where the data was doomed to thinking. It's like the sports scientist or the SNC or the coach was like, oh, well, the data says this, so we're not going to do this. And I was like, that, you know, that data isn't, that data is just data. And what I find is if you're using a lot of these sources of data, they're disagreeing with one another all the time. So which one is right? We're being sold stuff, you know, it's in the high of a new shiny tool, come and give me lots of money and I'll give you this new shiny tool to solve all your problems. Six months later, well, actually, it doesn't solve, solve my problems and it's, it's you know, it's, it's thrown in the, in the shed, basically. And I think uh, an important overlying uh, concept or idea or approach that you keep indirectly stating is that you're really giving control to the athlete. You're, you're communicating with them. You're, okay, do you want to go do five-minute warm-up and then we'll come back, try it, or we'll go on to the next thing or something like that. And I think, I think that communication with the athlete is the most important thing, like you stated earlier. Yeah, I know. If you talk to coaches about this, a lot of the time they'll say, I can't trust the athletes. Well, I guess there's a couple of responses there, but it would be, how long are you working with them? And what do you mean you can't trust them? If you're working with them that length of time, you either need to develop a trusting relationship or stop working with them. But that's just kind of putting the blame on the athlete. And athletes, they're all motivated to do things. If they're lying to you, they're lying to you for a reason. Because they say, well, the coach is going to push me and my knee is going to go and I'm going to be out for six months. So you need to find out that and then find a way of unraveling that problem. It can't be enough to, you know, this them versus them, them versus us. And I'm the coach and I do all the planning and I do, I'm the brains. They're just the bodies. That's, that stuff is bullshit to me. You know, it's, it's, got, it's a mutual process. We're there to support, and guide uh, and mentor you know, and, and that times be tough. Like, you know, I start to talk about, you know, the spectrum. If the data says this, then we won't do that. A lot of the time I'd be saying, you're having a bad day. You're having a crap day. You feel really bad. This is a great opportunity for us to go hard. Now, obviously, in the back of the coach's head, it's like, okay, I need to be really careful about injury here. You know, I'm not going to risk some gains and some psychological toughness for six weeks out so there's all these kind of pros and cons going on in the back of your head but that's our job it's making all those cal calculations and doing them in real time and going opportunity yeah okay let's go with this let's push ultimately what you want it's not necessarily an athlete that squats twice body weight it's an athlete that has confidence in their ability to cope with whatever is thrown at them because they have they have been in that situation and if we never throw anything unexpected at them they never get to that situation so i think again where our spectrum it's ignore what the athlete says and too touchy-feely and we need to kind of we need to be able to slide up and down that scale and do the right things at the right time 
and it's not easy. And I think we're doing a disservice to people if we make it sound like it's easy, i.e. where we started periodization, do this for four weeks, then do this for four weeks, take a week off, you know, so. And again, I'm not beaten up in periodization. It's just, yeah, our thinking needs to be evolving way, way beyond a training program. It's just the physical, the, the empirical descriptors of how you, you, of what somebody does. It's okay, well, how do I educate them about this? How do I engage them for this? Uh, what's the feedback me mechanisms? And I need to have all those in place and they're just as important as the weight in the bar. Totally agree. You know, it's, that's perfect. I mean, it's, it's something like you said, it's lacked, but something that some people still hold on to with that periodization that, hey, it's got to be this way. We have to have, you have to purely work on strength and power. And then if we do that right, your hypertrophy is going to be in the best situation to grow. Um, but what indication that has, has that to carry over to the sports field or any of that? Um, but I think you hit on the head, right? Instilling confidence and and the belief in that, that athlete that they can handle whatever situation is at hand. Um, and I think that's the most powerful tool is the mind and being able to build that mind for the athlete um, will take them wonders, not only in the gym, but in later in life um, when they're outside of their sport, um, having that confidence and belief uh, within their abilities to handle whatever stress is at hand. Um, but John, you know, it, it's, we want to, you know, be cautious of your your time. And I know it's kind of getting up there to the 90-minute mark, but I appreciate your time, sir. Um, definitely going to have you on part two because we didn't even really get to that other paper with the exercise response efficiency. Uh, again, that has some really cool uh, potential later on in these uh, the next couple of decades um, to hopefully bridge the gap between exercise adherence and exercise, you know, efficiency um, and allowing us to either as coaches or individuals to allow people to enjoy exercise and not have it, you know, a, a need, uh, but a more of a want and that psychological aspect. I think that we continuously talk about even with periodization in our athletes um, is something that we should probably start bridging and bringing over to those general populations and those clinical populations as well. Sounds good. So John, if you, again, remind all of our listeners where they could find you social media, um, research gate, all of that. Um, and then maybe any other research that you possibly have going on or what you're currently, um, have oh, yeah, coming okay. up on your, your time. Uh, okay. So I guess papers wise, I've, I've two under two nearly finished. One is on running coordination and stiffness. That's one kind of pet project. And the other one is, uh, kind of, it started out with periodization, but it ended up something totally different about pretty much how it's the athlete's prediction of what's likely to happen that drives their training response. Now, I know that's saying a lot, but there's a big backstory to it. So I've been wrestling with that for a couple of years. So, so hopefully that will be out this year. Okay. Uh, social media, I'm on Twitter, um, at Simply Sports Soy. I'm on Instagram, the same handle, but uh, I, I guess I've more a little more of a presence on Twitter. Um, yeah, that's it. That's me. Gotcha. Well, that's John Kylie blowing all the smoke on all the smoke on strength and physique, sir. We appreciate you coming on and educating us and as well as our listeners on periodization and how to, I guess, bridge the gap between you know the psychological aspect of 
of performance-based aspects with our athletes and clients. So it was a pleasure. We're definitely going to have to have you on a part two. My pleasure. Thank you.